Pulsive Church, friends, family, and guests, and Merry Christmas Eve to you all. I want to ask you to join me in prayer one more time, and that we ask the Lord to speak to us through His Word today. Father, we are grateful for Your Word. We pray that we would receive it with not only listening ears, but receptive hearts, so that you can have your way in us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've lost touch with God, how do you get back in touch with God? Maybe you've uh, made a big mess of things, and you feel like you really can't start things up with God again. Maybe you've come to a point in your life where you look around yourself, you wonder how you've allowed yourself to get into this mess, that kind of situation. Um, Maybe it's not that you've made a decision to walk away from God, and that's some people. Some people, they say, you know, I heard about God, I want nothing to do with that. You've not come to that place. You, in the recesses of your heart, you still want a relationship with God, but you've rejected him by keeping him at a distance and chasing the things that you want. Um... It's not that you don't believe in God, it's that you gave up following him in areas where you'd rather suit yourself. Now, there are many ways you do this, but I'll just throw some examples out there based on the Ten Commandments. This is a good starting point. You know God commands not to commit adultery, and Jesus said that's including in your heart, but maybe you've chosen to live a secret life of addiction to clicking on certain things, graphic things watching things and then you're confronted with the truth and it's maybe damaged your marriage or maybe it's saddled you with shame and you're kind of stuck in that place or you know God says not to covet but you've staked much of your career on chasing the better car the better house the better vacations and maybe it's cost you some friendships cost you some relationships maybe it's cost you trust one day you look up and you realize you've been a real jerk but you've already established this, yourself this way. This is how you've been operating for so long. How do you turn that around? You feel stuck. Or maybe you know God commands not to shape a graven image for worship. And you know you've not literally taken a piece of wood and shaped it to try to look like God. But little by little, maybe you've allowed yourself to think about God in your own terms. And in your heart, you've been reshaping him into a permissive, cheap God a pocket charm that you wear for good fortune but doesn't tell you what to do. Maybe you've already estranged yourself from him in that way. So you feel stuck in these places and you wonder, you know, can I turn things around really? Or have I just betrayed God too much for that to really happen? And so whatever your mess is, you're wondering if there's a way forward. You might be thinking uh, something like, you know, the the consequences that you feel like you're surrounded by or the shame or the guilt that you feel suffocated by that are on top of you that you've been piling up for a while. Um, It's an impassable barrier to really make things right with God. You get it if somebody is an overt sinner, they've never been in church, they've never claimed to have a relationship with God, They get the first try. But you grew up around God, and you kind of have God on the side, but you don't really live for him, and that's a different kind of betrayal, and you wonder, 
maybe that's not for me because I've been kind of piling up this mess in my life. So I want to level with you. Uh, If you want to reconcile with God, um, it is a big deal. So this this message is not going to be, don't worry about it. It's not a mess. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, Saunter up to God and just uh, tell him, hey, let's do this. No, that's not. It's not quite that. It is serious. It is a serious mess. However, I, want, I think this passage we're going to look at today, I hope that you bookmark it, underline it, highlight it. It should be one of the most worn out pages in your Bible, if I'm understanding it correctly, because it teaches us that it's not too late and no mess is too big. No betrayal is too egregious to reconcile with God. It is a serious matter. God takes it seriously, but that doesn't mean there isn't a way. All right? So we're going to look at that in 1 Samuel 12. If you don't have Bibles, if you don't literally own a Bible, we'll give you one. Please come talk to us. Merry Christmas. We'll give you a Bible and send you home with it. Uh, But if you just didn't bring one with you today, open up your phone, your tablet, your device. It's fine. Just mute the ringer, please. And then just Google 1 Samuel 12, and you'll find multiple resources there to get to it. The translation uh, probably doesn't matter that much, but I'm using the ESV. Now, in 1 Samuel 12, why 1 Samuel 12? Because you've got a people that have been chosen by God. They're not the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Moabites. Like, they're God's people, and they've not been behaving well, and they've been stacking up sins. They, they've not acted like God's children, and that's that's... They're stuck, okay? And they've experienced all kinds of blessings from God. They've grown up with God. They have a long history with God. They do things that a people of God would do. They, they, they go to public gatherings. They bring the public sacrifices. They say the prayers. They read the Torah. They, I mean, they do religious things. They're comfortable with it. They know about it. But they kept walking away from God. They kept not doing what he says. And they kept finding themselves in a mess. And then this time, rather than asking God for help, they demanded that he finally do things their way. So this is sort of the, the cherry on top of their disobedience. All right? They keep making a mess. They keep making a mess. And then when they come to God, instead of going, you know what, God, I'm sorry. Let's do things your way. They're like, you know what, God, do things my way. If you did, things would go a lot better. And the way they did that was, you know what? Every other nation has a king. How come we don't have a king? We want a king just like the nations. So God took that as a betrayal. We learned that, right, in the previous passages. Because they're rejecting God as king. They want something a little more manageable. And they want something that looks a little bit more like their worldly friends have. Does that sound familiar? I don't reject you, God. I just want things to go in my life the way my friends have it. The way the people in Hollywood have it. The people I watch on TV, TV the way they have it. You know, so don't be so strict. And so, you know, give me something that looks familiar to me. And that's where Israel finds themselves now. That's the new low that Israel has stooped to. They knew they needed a leader. But they didn't want a prophet, which is like a preacher. That might sound familiar too. Man, I really need help. Why don't you go talk to your pastor? Or your preacher. Or someone in your life, doesn't have to be me, someone in your life, your growth group leader. It's like, ah, no, I mean like somebody for real. They didn't want to consult the Torah. Has someone ever been like, man, you're in real deep trouble. Have you read your Bible? 
I'd rather go to Google, you know. I need a Reddit thread, not the Bible. That's what they were doing. That's, what, that's, what, that's where Israel found themselves, and it was essentially telling God, we want you, but we want you on our terms because we want to be like the world. So imagine the teenager that's like, hey, look, mom and dad, I want to live here, and I want to continue this deal for housing, free housing, free meals, free cell phone, and my own room, but just don't tell me what to do, all right? That's basically what Israel is telling God. And maybe that's how this mess has started in your life, if this is you, between you and God. So this passage, 1 Samuel 12, is a lesson in making things right with God, okay? It is a, it's blueprints for reconciliation. And so I want you to turn there, and we're going to start reading it, because I think we're going to gain pointers from this passage. If you're in a place, you want to turn around, you want to get out of your mess, you want to get out of your consequences, and you're sick of the cycle, you're sick of the up and down, you realize that you've not been following the Lord as you are supposed to, this is your uh, how to turn things around passage, 1 Samuel 12. And here's the first thing we recognize right off the top. The first thing we see in this passage, in the first five verses, is we, if we're going to turn things around and reconcile with God, we need to recognize that we can't blame the people that God has put in our lives that point us to God. So this is the first thing Samuel does. Samuel is sort of acting as the liaison, the go-between. You got Israel, disobedient, the father, he's been dissed, right? And Samuel is showing them how to get in reconciliation with God. And the first thing Samuel does to clear the deck is just so, we, just so we're clear, if this reconciliation is going to work, you can't keep pointing fingers at God. You can't keep pointing fingers at the people that God has placed in your life that have been telling you all along to follow the Lord. So look at the first five verses, 1 Samuel 12. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded, whom have I oppressed, or from whom, whose hands have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. So notice, Samuel, their prophet, is making sure he's not to blame here. All right? He doesn't say he's been perfect. Samuel's not, he's not perfect, but what he's saying is um, that he's not led them astray. He's pointed them in the right direction, and they just didn't want that right direction. So they're going to experience losses, they're going to experience hardships under the king that they wanted. He's like, here, you wanted a king, you got your king, but it wasn't me, right? I'm not the one that wanted that. You wanted that. You remember? You wanted that? They're like, you're right. And, I'm like, and I told you, a king is going to take from you. Remember back in 1 Samuel 8, when they asked for the king, he's like, you know what kings do? Kings take. And he's going to take your sons, and he's going to take your daughters, and he's going to take your donkeys, and he's going to take your oxen. And they were like, yeah, yeah, give us a king. And now he's like, did I take your oxen? Did I take bribes? Did I take your sons and daughters? No, I didn't. But you wanted that. I didn't do it. So the terms are being set for, for, the, for the reconciliation to happen. And he wants to make sure that they're not stuck in that place like Adam and Eve. You remember when uh, God comes 
uh, and they hear him coming and they're hiding. And he calls them out. What child been up to? I mean, he knows. But then it's the blame game, right? Well, it's the husband you gave me. It's the wife. It's the serpent. Oh, it's you. That's basically, well, you did it. <laughs> you could have given me a better spouse. Or you, you could have prevented that serpent. It's the blame game. And reconciliation doesn't happen that way. Samuel's making sure the deck is cleared. And then not just Samuel getting himself off the hook, so to speak. Samuel's like, I didn't do anything, right? They're like, yeah, you're right. And he's like, and just to be clear, God, it's not God's fault either, right? And that's what you see in the next few verses, 6 through 12. Samuel clarifies that the Lord has always rescued them from their oppressors through deliverers. But when Nahash rose up against them, this, this uh, king that was fighting Israel, rather than turning to God, they turned to someone else. So trouble's always going to hit your life. What did you do in that trouble? Did you turn to God or did you turn somewhere else? They turned somewhere else, and that's why they're stuck in this mess. And he's trying to say, look, that's not God's fault. So we can't reconcile if we're blaming things on God. Look at verse 6. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and your fathers when Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them. Then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God and he sold them into the hand of Sisera commander of the army of Hazor and into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them and they cried out to the Lord and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord God was your king. So <laughs> he's taking them down memory lane and teaching them God has a perfect track record of rescuing you, right? When you got in trouble and you came to him, he wasn't like, Well, you got yourself in trouble. He delivered. He always delivers, and then you just didn't want it. God has been perfectly faithful. The indictment is in verse 9. They forgot the Lord their God. That doesn't mean they literally forgot. Like if you gave them a quiz of like, who's God? It's not that they actually forgot in their minds. It's that they forgot in their hearts. They functionally forgot God by going after other solutions, other sources of help, other comforts. And this is interesting. You know, when you read through texts like this, you're like Hazor and the Philistines and the Moabites. It just sounds like it's just so foreign to us. It literally is foreign to us. But if you pulled out a map... Hazor's on the north, Philistia's on the south, Moab's in the east, and west is not mentioned because that's the Mediterranean Sea, if you're familiar with the, the map, right? So basically, the, the, the reason why Samuel is pointing those particular peoples out is because he's saying God has rescued you from every side, north, east, south, any direction. Any kind of way you were in trouble, God rescued you from. But then you didn't want him. So these aren't random problems that they ran into. They're consequences. And this might be a little hard of a pill to swallow. I'm going to tell it to you anyway, because it's what the text says. It says in verse 9 that God sold them into the hands of their enemies. You see that? So a lot of times, you know, the consequences we find ourselves in, 
They are direct consequences of our sins. But it's not like God is up there like, ah, I wish we could have prevented that. He's like, that's what you get. Why? Is he vindictive? Is he passive aggressive? Well, I'm just going to let them fall into their own trap. And it's, like, it's to turn them around. If everything was daisies and rosies in your consequences, you wouldn't turn. But if it's difficult, like it is for Israel, they realize, oh, you got this Nahash dude, and the king's not that great. What, what was their king doing? The first move he did is hide behind the baggage. Kind of a scaredy cat. That's their first king. God doesn't hide behind baggage. God rescues and delivers. So they're already seeing how they messed up. And the reason why verse 9 says God sold them into, God is the one that delivered them into the hands of their enemies is because that's how God operates to try to get you to wake up oftentimes. So we might sit there blaming God for our consequences and then you see a text like that, you're like, yeah, he's the one that designed my consequences. See? God doesn't care about me. He lets me fall flat on my face. He could have prevented that. You don't love me. But the consequences is what drives them to get back with God. That's why they're having this conversation. They'd never be having this conversation if it weren't for those consequences. It's what prompts them to call out to him. So maybe your consequences is right where you need to be right now. So we're not going anywhere with God if we start the conversation by blaming him. It's not, it's just not, we're not where we need to be. Or blaming the pastors or blaming the parents or blaming the Christian friend or blaming the church. What we need to do is understand that consequences are our doing and that God uses those consequences to drive us back to him. And it worked, right? In verse 10, it says, they cried out to the Lord, we've sinned. Because we have forsaken the Lord, we serve these other idols, we serve these other gods, but now deliver us out of the hands of our enemies that we may serve you. We don't want just rescue from the pain so we can be comfortable. We want to switch service. We want to drop serving these guys, and we want to serve you. And then they were caused to live in safety, the text says. So we see that God wants to deliver us. He wants to deliver you. He wants reconciliation to happen and he's not out there trying to hurt you he's just letting some things hurt to bring you back to him but Israel wasn't learning that lesson that's how they kept stepping into bigger and bigger messes worse than their previous generations did in a real sense and they asked for a king like the nations they made this mess worse by doing that when they could have turned to God now we've established that reconciliation with God means not blaming him we're not blaming the people who've taught us about him, and Samuel in their case. And we don't blame God for our consequences, even if he's allowed us to walk right into them. That still doesn't bring us to a place where we blame God for it. He's, going to, he's trying to use it to bring us back. And we also understand that he allows them to show us grace. So how do we move forward? How do we move forward? We move forward by recognizing that repentance is different than I'm sorry. It's a difference between I'm sorry and the kind of repentance that actually makes reconciliation happen. Look at the text in verse 13 of 15. This is what Samuel is teaching them. This reconciliation, guys, is only going to work if both you and the king serve the Lord in obedience. Right? In obedience. Look at verse 13. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, <laughs> he's still making sure they understand they're the ones that did this, 
Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So look at the phrases that stack here. They all essentially point to the same thing, doing what the Lord says, following him. He says, if you will fear the Lord, serve the Lord, obey his voice, not rebel against his commandment, follow the Lord your God. Those are all the same thing. Repentance, if it's genuine, for reconciliation to work, must involve obedience, change. Otherwise, I'm sorry you do it again. I'm sorry you do it again. That's the, that's the cycle that Israel was in. I'm sorry they do it again. And every time they did it again, it was worse. They kept getting into bigger and bigger trouble. So now before they commit to anything, Samuel wants Israel to be clear that this is not a light matter. This is, I find this very interesting because I'm ready for them to reconcile. They're like ready to repent. They don't want to blame anybody. They're sick of the blame game. They want to repent. He's like, but you're going to obey. They're like, we get it. He's like, nah, y'all don't get it. So Samuel wants them to understand that this is a weighty matter because if we treat it too lightly, there's a danger in the repentance being cheap. You know what I mean? If we see our mess as like not that big of a deal, then your repentance isn't going to be a big deal and reconciliation is not that big of a deal to you. This is a big deal, so he just wants to take a time out before getting the reconciliation going just to help them understand this is a really big deal, okay? This is a big deal. It's not just that you've made messes for yourself. It's that you've grieved and angered God, who's your creator and who set his love upon you. So we see this in 16 and 19. Samuel calls upon the Lord to display his anger, and that's the final move to prompt Israel to repent. Verse 16. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? He's calling attention to what season it is. Uh, Just a quick hint. It is not rain season. Is it not wheat harvest today? Verse 17. I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. See, they get it now. Now, if you look at this text, you're like, thunder? I mean, like, how bad can it be? Thunder? Have you ever heard thunder so loud that the car alarms start going off? That means it was so loud, the sound vibration was strong enough to trigger the impact sensors, the sensors on the car's alarm system. That's loud. According to our National Weather Service, here's just a quote I pulled, severe thunderstorms are officially defined as storms that are capable of producing hail that is in inch or larger or wind gusts over 58 miles per hour. Hail this size can damage property such as plants, roofs, vehicles, Wind this strong is able to break off large branches, knock over trees, cause structural damage to trees, uh, etc. Thunderstorms also produce tornadoes and dangerous lightning. Heavy rain can cause flash flooding. I mean, so we're not supposed to envision 
a refreshing rain that comes over them and relieves them of the, the heat. No, that's not why they're afraid. This is, this is serious. And it's also not the right time for something like this. It's clearly God doing this. And so I'm imagining wind and possible damage to their crops and their cattle. So God is communicating to them. Uh, do you think the nations are fearsome? Because a lot of the things we turn to, we turn to because we're afraid. You're afraid of this, so you turn to that for comfort or security. That's what Israel did. They didn't just randomly serve other gods. They served other gods because they're like, how do we get it so that the nations stop hating on us? How do I get popular with the nations? I'm scared of not being popular with everybody. I'm scared of fighting all these battles. I'm scared of not having friendships. If I get close with God, I lose all these friends. I hate that. How about I compromise and then I can gain friends? That's all fear-based. And so God is like, I'm the one you need to fear. And then don't worry about anything else. The one who can bring thunder, the one who can bring rain, the one who's in command of storms, if he's on your side, what are you afraid of? Trust me. That's what he's saying. And you guys wanted a king, a real tall guy named Saul. What's your tall guy going to do in 58-mile-per-hour winds? Just wondering. So what does Israel do? They do what they're supposed to do. They repent. Like a real repentance, a heartfelt repentance. I think that's what the text is telling us. They repent. Interestingly, they don't just repent of the sin of choosing a king. They repent of all the stuff that led up to that bad decision. The pattern of sinning, the succession of sinning, the, the, the routine of sinning that led up to that moment. They repent of their denial of the only one who can save them, but they also repent of all the stuff that led up to that because true repentance recognizes all of it. The big thing is that right in front of you, you have uh, this big thing that was the final thing that it's caused this huge mess in your life. But real repentance realizes a lot of little things led up to that big thing. And those, those grieve God too. And actually, that points to an underlying problem. It's not just I made this bad decision and I've got all these consequences. It's the reason why I made that bad decision and all the, the, the things in my heart and in my mind that prompt me to do the things that led up to that bad decision. So Israel is repenting not for just one thing. So I think if we're taking notes on how to reconcile with God, it's not, God, I'm so sorry for this singular, individual, isolated thing. It's going deeper than that. True repentance recognizes that the big thing in front of us has all these prior things leading up to it. Fake repentance isolates matters. Fake repentance blames others. Fake repentance casts off responsibility, and it makes, it makes messy patterned behavior about a singular incident, and that's not true. Fake repentance focuses on outward actions and doesn't look to the patterns of behavior pointing to a deeper problem. But Israel is brought to their knees, and they're seeing how serious this is before God, and it prompts full repentance from them. Now, this is difficult heart work. But once you're there, you let go of the excuse-making, the blame-shifting, the redefining of terms, the isolating of individual sins, and then you're ready for real hope. This is what Samuel extends to them at the end of the passage, in verses 20 to 25. He extends hope to them. They truly have sinned. It is true. And it is weighty. And it did anger God. But 
If their repentance leads to obedience, then the Lord will lead them. And then he doesn't count it against them anymore. They just need to remember that this came at a great, uh, that, that their wickedness, if they continue in wickedness, it'll be costly to them. So verses 20 to 25, Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. That's a little humorous, right? Cow, you know, like the, the cattle are falling over, the wheat is blowing around, and they're like, this is scary. And then, and then maybe it subsides, and Samuel comes out and is like, don't be afraid. And they're like, oh, but it, it's actually coming on the heels of their repentance. So they came to the Lord, and they're recognizing their guilt. They don't have to do anything. They didn't perform anything. They don't have to go climb a super high mountain, go find a secret treasure, go scuba dive for some deep lost pirate thing, and then present a special relic to the Lord. Just repent. We did all this stuff. No blaming. I take the blame. You've been perfect all this time, and I just didn't turn to you. That's it. And he says, you don't have to be afraid, verse 20. If you leave this service afraid, you miss the passage. You miss the fullness of the passage. You got some of the passage, (laughs) but you didn't get the fullness of it. You have done all this evil, verse 20. Let's not sweep it under the rug. Let's not pretend it didn't happen. And let's not do the whole, let's not talk about it so we can have a nice dinner tonight. You have done all this evil, verse 20. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord. It's not too late. But serve the Lord with all your hearts and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit, that cannot deliver. Why? Because they are empty. Verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Let me just pause there a second. I didn't plan to say this, but if you ever wonder, why would God take me back? Because God's a show off. He's the only one that's allowed to be a show off without it being arrogant. Why? Because he is all that. He literally is all that. He is worthy of all glory, praise, props, fist bumps, you got it, yes, he's perfect. He's worthy of all of that. And one of the great ways he shows off his great desire and skill and wisdom is to turn someone like me around. That's how he shows off. He's not doing it. He didn't turn my life around for me. He turned my life around for him. So when someone says, Lucas, I thought, he was like this. Well, he was, and sometimes still is. But God. So that people don't point to, Lucas, how did you do it? How did you turn things around? How do you do it? What's your daily routine? It's, what happened in your life? God. God happened. I didn't read a seven habits of an effective person and turn things around. God takes the credit. That's why he wants to do it. Verse 23. Moreover, As for me, he says, far be it from me, this is Samuel speaking to Israel, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Another added note that I didn't plan to say, but I just think it's important. You've got someone in your life that needs to be reconciled to God and you're so ticked at them on behalf of God that you don't want to pray for them anymore. Samuel calls that sin. I'd be sinning against you, Israel, if I stopped praying for you, even though you're an idiot. You're so dumb. Our little kids see it in CFC Kids. We walk them through the Bible. Israel failed again, guys. Israel failed again. Guess what is the lesson for this morning? Let me guess. Israel failed again. You got it. You've been here for several weeks, and you understand, right? 
it's over and over and over. And then in our sort of arrogant selves, we're reading like, man, Israel's really dumb until we realize the Bible is a mirror. And we're no better than Israel because that's our pattern too. So rather than getting so frustrated with those people in our lives, we need to remember that we're not supposed to cease praying for them. Verse 23. And he says, I will instruct you. Okay, I'm not going to sin against you by not praying for you. I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to instruct you in the good and right way. Because Israel's like, I repent, but I have no idea where to start. And that might be you too. I repent, but I don't know. Where do I do now? You'll be instructed. You'll be led. Samuel's telling them, verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Don't worry about what you're going to do Monday morning or what Tuesday's going to look like or what, what happens come Friday. Serve the Lord. Fear the Lord. And all those things are going to fall into place. Serve him faithfully with all your heart. How do you do that? Consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king. So God doesn't reconcile by telling Israel they need to obey enough. If they obey well enough or long enough, then it will be well with them. No, they, they need help to do it, see? So he promises to lead them. Samuel's like, hey, I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to be your instructor. That's God setting someone in their life who's not their dumb king, by the way, is the guy that God has put there to point them to the Lord. He's been doing that the whole time, but he's promising to pray for them and to instruct them and to guide them, to give them what they need. He's teaching them to not be rebellious, what it looks like to live out your repentance in obedience, to teach them how to do it. He's going to intercede for them, asking God to empower them to do it. I mean, what is Samuel, what is the content of that prayer? He's praying that God would empower them to obey. He knows they're weak. He asked God to strengthen them. So God tells them to turn away from empty things. He's going to deliver on his promise. They're his people. He's going to show off by doing amazing things with them, even though they were disobedient. And he wants his people to serve him it's twice, a whole heart, verse 20 and verse 24. Not a half heart, a poor, partial heart. That's been the problem the whole time, right? It's, I kind of want to serve God. He's like, I've got to be number one, man. If I'm number one, then it will be well. Why? Because look at all the great things he's done for them in verse 24. So that means that their motivation is a couple things here, right? They're partly motivated, motivated by the fear of consequences. That's what kind of drove them to their knees, right? We talked about that. But they're also motivated by appreciating God's blessings. Right? Think about the great things God has done for you. Don't only think about dodging consequences. Also think about embracing blessings. So repentance and coming to the Lord is not just running away from things, but it's running to something. And that something that you're running to is great. So it's not just stopping the consequences. It's it's gaining blessing in your life that you can't have outside of a walk with God. There are real consequences. He reminds of them that in the end, verse 25, that's the last thing he said. Just remember the consequences. There's that too. But he wants them to focus on the blessings so that they're motivated not only by the fearsomeness of God, but also by the faithfulness of God. So here's what it looked like for Israel. Israel was brought to repentance by recognizing their rejection of God in the face of all that he's delivered them from. But then recognizing the Lord is going to continue to lead them in the context of obedience. So it's true for us too. Here's the point. When we truly repent, the Lord promises to lead us in obedience. So that's the promise. If we truly repent 
and that requires obedience, the Lord's like, I got you. Repent, and I'll teach you the obedience part. I will teach it to you. Um, this is going to make the message a little longer. I just want, I just want you to have this, okay? Because we're, we've been talking about reconciliation between us and God, and I think there's some good gold here for reconciliation between you and someone else, you and another person. So I'm going to just give you this brief, I promise, short, a uh, few pointers that I think is going to help us with because if we're looking at this lesson about how we reconcile with God, Scripture tells us that's the model as to how we reconcile with people. So you might have someone in your life that you're not reconciled with, and what are some steps that you can take? You remember in Ephesians 4, Paul said that we forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's how we forgive each other, the way God forgave us in Christ. So this passage is about reconciliation with God, and I think there's some pointers here for reconciliation with each other. Let me just give you a few real quick. Number one, before calling someone to repentance, we should look at ourselves first. That's what Samuel did, right? Before laying out their sins, he's like, did I do anything here? And I think that's important for us to recognize. It might be the case that it's not all been one-sided. In Samuel's case, he didn't do anything wrong, but let's be real. Probably for most of us, we may have contributed in some way, and we need to, we need to lay that out. We need to start there and not start with the sins of the other person just laying out their issues. Those are issues, but do I have any issues? And let me start there. That's, that's how to begin reconciliation. Number two, God is the one truly sinned against. So remember, after Samuel exonerates himself, he's like, but look how perfect God has been. Like he gets the attention off himself and onto God, who's really the one that's been betrayed here. Okay. Number three, real repentance requires a real reckoning with our errors. Not just the latest and the greatest thing that is most recent contributing to the mess, but, but all of it, the underneath things that prompt it. We need to keep that in mind as well. Number four, just a couple more. Number four, when you forgive someone, it means you really drop it. Forgiveness means that even though you could hold the sin against them, you really could because the sins are real, but you don't. You commit to walking forward with them. This is how God does forgiveness. The person forgiving needs to promise to walk with the forgiven person, not drudging up the past every time things get difficult. Why? Because that's how God does it. And if anyone has the right to keep bringing up the past, it's God. And he doesn't. And so we forgive the way God forgives. And then number five, on the other side of the table, when you accept forgiveness from someone, it means you really drop it too. The sinning. In other words, real repentance requires not just moving on from the past, but preventing the past from creeping into the present and into the future. The person in sin, being forgiven, needs to stop the sinning. You don't slap someone and say, I'm sorry, and then you slap them again, right? This doesn't work that way. So it's a two-way street. Both sides have to drop it and move forward in obedience. Now, real quickly, back to this I can't close the sermon without pointing this out. There's some real tensions here, and this is all over the Bible, and mainly the tension is between obedience and grace. You might be feeling that a little. Well, which one is it? He forgives me, but he requires obedience, but he doesn't require anything for forgiveness, but forgiveness has to require obedience. Which one is it? Do I obey my way back to the Lord, or do I repent my way back to the Lord? And how, how, how do those two things work together? And the reason why it's attention is because if you say, real repentance means from now on, Lord, I'm going to obey. 
How many of us can actually do that? I mean, if real repentance requires my life changes to the point where I don't sin anymore, can I ever have real reconciliation with God? It's not possible. I'm talking for myself. Not possible. So, how can we actually reconcile with God if I know in the future I'm going to keep adding to the side of the ledger labeled sin? And then, if I'm real honest with myself, how does God really let go of the past? He's just, right? So imagine the parents of a a young girl that was kidnapped, abused, killed, and then telling the parents, just let it go. They'd be like, how about justice? Right? Now, it's easy in the case of the kidnapped girl. It's just so egregious, and then the nameless, faceless kidnapper would like execute them. I mean, it's crazy, right, that you would do something like that. But when it's my sin, should God be just there? How does he really let go of the past? So I have a problem that's forward and backward. I know if I repent, I'm going to keep sinning. Uh, Is that true repentance? And even though I repent, I didn't actually erase what I did. And that's always going to haunt me. It's got to haunt God because he's holier than I am. So how, how does that get taken care of? Well, that gets taken care of. And those of you who are wondering if it's the Sunday school answer, Jesus, you win. You win the prize. Of course it's Jesus. And if you're like, why is he preaching this on Christmas Eve? It's always Jesus. This text is Jesus. This is about King Jesus and how he solves that issue for us. Because all the pain and the wrath and the consequence that I should have gotten from my past, all the pain and the wrath and the consequence that I should get from my future is put on Christ back on the cross. That's why he's the perfect king. Because no king can actually be the perfectly, perfect saving person to save you from your past and to actually prevent you from the pain and consequence of your future, the condemnation that belongs upon us. So God sends Jesus Christ, this king that we need, this leader that we need, in order to obey God, to walk with him. We need a leader, we need a king, but we need a king who can actually bridge the gap between us and God by handling all of our stuff. It doesn't get swept under the rug, but it does get nailed to the cross. That's how the tension is resolved. Literally, the solution is Christmas. He is the God-man who can be the human leader, And as Yahweh with us, he's taking care of justice, taking those sins on Calvary. And he teaches us to obey. He does better than Samuel because he's able to give us the heart that it takes to obey well. Samuel couldn't give them that. And then you remember when Samuel promised to pray for them? That's what Jesus does. It's, It's the ministry of intercession by Jesus Christ. That's what it means that Jesus is a mediator, if you've ever heard that term. He intercedes for you. You remember when Peter was about to fail. He didn't think he was going to fail. He was kind of cocky, and Jesus is like, you're going to fail. Oh, I would never. You're going to fail. But I'm praying for you. So after you fail and you return to me, uh, hook my sheep up with some good sermons. So that's Jesus going, reconciliation is possible such that a cowering disciple who couldn't admit that he was a disciple in front of a young lady turns into the chief leader of the early church. How does that happen? Jesus said, because I prayed for you. That's how. He's the perfect Samuel interceding for his people. 
So as we look at this final thing, if you're feeling like you're in a place, you're trapped. Okay, we've talked about consequences. You've talked about uh, disappointments, the way you've grieved God and you feel like maybe there's no way to return to him. There is. It's called repentance, true and genuine repentance. And you might feel like, man, I, I just don't know if I can muster up the courage or the ability to obey. Let me just give you one piece of homework. Ask Jesus to pray for you. It's just be, be, come to him and say, Lord, I want to repent truly, but I know I can't stop sinning. I don't know. I, I know I won't be able to obey. I might be able to obey pretty well for a week, <laughs> a couple weeks, but I don't have it in me. Well, that's what the Bible makes pretty clear. We don't have it in us. So how, does, how, how do any of us turn things around? God working in our lives. So come to him and just say, Lord, would you intercede for me the way you interceded for Peter? And I know if you do, my heart will change and my life can be turned around. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you for this amazing promise that you give us in Scripture. You hold up the mirror to our lives, and it's, uh, sometimes it's, it's ugly, it's painful to look at. And each of us has done that in our own way, Lord. Each of us has gone astray. Each of us has rebelled. We all have our own um, track record that need to get taken care of, Lord, and we're thankful that we can get that taken care of in Christ. So as we close in the song, Lord, we pray that you would allow the, the message of 1 Samuel 12 to resonate in our hearts and to bring us to a place where uh, if we need to reconcile with you, Lord, that we would do that. Um, and if we have other people in our lives that we need to reconcile with, Lord, that we would not put it off, that we would not extend the pain of uh, estrangement, Lord, and that we would at least do our part like Samuel did and make things right and lay our stuff out on the table. And so as we sing the song, Lord, may you be number one in our hearts and minds. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.